Matthew chapter 13. Here we are on the way, continuing to unpack Matthew's gospel. And we've made it all the way to the 13th chapter. And here we receive five parables from Jesus, each one of them describing what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And did you catch the really humorous part in the reading? I don't know if you find it funny, but I do. At the end of explaining these five parables, the mustard seed, the smallest of seeds that is planted and grows into a shrub, into a tree, and the birds take rest in the branches, the woman who takes yeast and puts it into the bread so that the bread can rise and grow, the The man who finds treasure and buries it again and then buys the field. The merchant who's looking for the best pearl and upon finding it sells everything he has to buy the one. And then the fisherman in the boat who tossed the net into the sea. At the end of those five parables, Jesus, he turns to his disciples and he says, do you understand all of this? And they said, yeah. Of course course we do, teacher. That gives me great comfort that even the disciples sometimes acted like they knew more than they did. Because parables, we know, do not have simple um, answers. Parables are not about one lesson. Jesus taught in parable so that we could continue to mine out the, the mysteries of God. Parables should be things that confound us and confuse us and encourage us. And now when you have five parables to preach from, most would think that practical wisdom would mean that you would just pick one of the five and focus your energy there, right? And last night at the Saturday night service, before the service, people were, um, they were bartering and they were placing bets on which of the five I was going to preach from. And I can tell you that there was a strong desire for it to be the mustard seed. It's probably the most known of these parables. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Others wanted a sermon on the pearls of great price. But as I was reading through Matthew 13 this week and thinking of all five of these parables, I couldn't help but think of a little old lady, Charlotte Fosnoff. Charlotte, to me, exemplified the teachings of Jesus through all five of these parables. I'll never forget, I think I was preschool, kinder, probably kindergarten, maybe approaching first grade, and it was a normal September Sunday at Messiah Lutheran Church, the church that I grew up in in Columbus. And my mom grabbed my hand and my sister's hand in the other, and she said, we're going to drop you off at Sunday school. And I was a little timid and a little afraid of what Sunday school would be like. I, I don't think I had been to Sunday school before, and Even worse, it was down in the basement of the church. And as we made our way down the stairs of the basement to the church, and I was holding my mom's hand, we approached the door, and she said, Charlotte will be your teacher. And there was Charlotte, the sweetest lady. And I'll never forget on that first day, as I'm timidly approaching the door of the Sunday school classroom, Charlotte... In all of her infinite wisdom, she does what we all know great teachers do with small children. She does this move. 
Have you ever seen that? She gets down right at your level, so she's looking right at you so that the child doesn't have to stare up at this big figure that they don't know. She got right down here, and she said, Lauren, my name is Mrs. Fosna, and I have the pleasure of teaching you about God's love. In my mind's eye, I don't know if it's actually true, she had this yellow cardigan on. She smelled like chocolate chip cookies. She was the sweetest lady that you could imagine. And as I made my way in there and I looked back at the door and my mom took my sister down the hallway and I felt a little timid and scared, Charlotte said, Lauren, why don't you come sit right here by Alan? Now, Alan was in my Cub Scout group, so I knew Alan. I felt a little bit more comfortable and off we went. Charlotte would serve as my Sunday school teacher through kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, all through elementary school. She taught all of the elementary students at Messiah Lutheran. And Charlotte, every time Sunday school was over, as the class was ending, Charlotte, as I made my way out the door in a line, things were more organized back then, standing there in line for my mom or my dad to pick me up or my older sister to come pick me up when it was my time to be released by Charlotte. She would do that thing again. She would get down small and she would ask me a question. She would say, Lorne, do you know what I love about you? What? Everything. Do you know what God loves about you? What? Everything. And off I was sent into the world. Every time we left Sunday school. Now, I was convinced that I was the only student she was saying that to. (laughs) I have since come to learn that Charlotte actually said that to all of her students. But it didn't matter. Because the impact of those words were like a small seed a mustard seed that was planted in a young boy's heart. And I can tell you that that seed, over time, with continual watering, continual love, continual sunlight, grew into a shrub and into a tree. And in its branches, this creature takes its rest. You see, what Charlotte was doing with me and so many other students at a young age is she was like a woman who was putting yeast into bread, little by little, so that the bread of our lives could could take shape and could rise to the fullness of our potential. And you know, when I got out of Charlotte Sunday School uh, class, classes, when I was beyond elementary and I was into middle school or junior high, after we would take communion and I would walk back down the aisle to my seat, I can still picture right where Charlotte Fosnaw sat. And as I would walk past her, she would often just put an arm out so as to make me stop for a moment. And she would look up at me, and she would mouth everything. Little reminders in a teenager's life that they were loved and they were valued. 
Well, wouldn't you know it? I got my first job at 15 and a half. I couldn't drive yet. My mom had to drop me off at Wesley Ridge Retirement Community outside of Reynoldsburg, Ohio. They had independent living, assisted living, and memory care unit. And I started out with my first job as the dishwasher back in the kitchen. And within a year, I graduated from beyond the kitchen out to the dining room floor. And boy, what an education that was. The residents at Wesley Ridge had little paper menus for every meal, and they had two options of entrees. They could circle up to three or four side dishes, and then, of course, there was the the fill-in-the-blank with your favorite ice cream. And now I can tell you, at Wesley Ridge, it was a toss-up between mint chocolate chip and butter pecan. And I would take those menus, and I'd bring them back to the kitchen, and then when the meals were ready, I would bring them out to residents' Um, it, it wasn't very labor-intensive. It was a really simple um, weight service job. But I came to learn as a 16-, 17-, 18-year-old working in this retirement community that our real job was to build relationships with the residents, to talk to them and reflect on life. And they loved when you would do that. And I'll never forget the week that there was buzz in the dining room. The ladies were talking about the new woman who had moved onto their floor. We invited her down for dinner. I'm not sure if she'll come. I hope she will. The excitement about a new friend. And as I was making my way out of the kitchen with a few plates of food in hand, I saw Charlotte Fosna sit down. And I went right up to her table. Charlotte! Mrs. Fosna! Her eyes, the same twinkle, the same love. And whenever I would bring her the butter pecan ice cream, she'd grab my hand and look at me and say, everything, everything. Charlotte's ministry was a ministry that was exemplified by making the one feel like they were invaluable. You see, Charlotte understood that even though she wasn't well-educated, she didn't have great resources, she was not even in the prime of her life, that she was a part of God's story of restoration, healing, and hope. Charlotte made me feel like the pearl of great price. Charlotte made me and so many other students feel like the greatest treasure that was found hidden in the field. Now, I'm going to admit something. So often, when I have thought about the treasure hidden in the field or the pearl of great price, I have interpreted that passage, that par- those parables from Jesus, through one particular lens— And it's a faithful lens to interpret the passages through. And maybe you've thought of it this way as well. The treasure in the field or the pearl of great value, obviously in the parable, must be the kingdom of God or faith in Jesus or Christ, a life of discipleship. And how many sermons have I preached throughout my life? Lord knows how many I've preached that have encouraged God's people to give up the false pearls of this world to grab a hold of what is truly of value, Christ, 
The kingdom of heaven, grace, love, peace, mercy, all of those good things preachers talk about. But maybe, just maybe, another faithful interpretation of the passage doesn't place the kingdom of God as the treasure or the pearl, but rather you. Could it not be a faithful gospel interpretation to believe that you, with all of your faults, all of your failings, all of your mistakes, with your road rage and your impatience, that you are the treasure God values more than anything? Think about it through the lens of Christ. The story of our faith is that God would so love the world that God would come down in human form with flesh and bones and sinews and would take on our humanity and walk among us to teach us and to love us and to encourage us. And that that same God who we call Jesus would go to the ends of the earth to prove to you and me that while we are yet confused and lost and overwhelmed, that Christ would cry out upon the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They know not how valuable they are. They are priceless. Maybe both interpretations are true. Maybe both are true. That yes, we often chase false pearls, fool's gold. We convince ourselves that life is all about accumulation and wealth and status and always wanting to achieve more and do more and have more so that we could be more content. And at times in our lives, we have these kairos moments, these moments where, where time stands still and we see with great clarity what actually matters most, God's love. And we are called to sell all of that fool's gold to take a hold of what truly is of infinite value. And at times, at the same time throughout our life, I believe God is trying to communicate to us very clearly that we are of infinite value. You know, it didn't matter in that Sunday school classroom if Alan and I were goofing off and we pulled out of the backs of our pockets our Ninja Turtle action figures, and we were battling while Charlotte was trying to tell us about whatever story she was trying to tell us. It didn't matter if I pulled a girl's hair in class one day or refused to open my Bible because I didn't want to read that day. No matter what, as I was lined up to leave her classroom, Charlotte would get down on her hands and knees like this and say, do you know what I love about you? Everything. And sometimes I left thinking, even today, Charlotte? Everything. You know, as my kids go to bed at night or randomly throughout the day, I often ask them, do you know what I love about you? I'm looking at them. And they'll say, oh, everything. <laughs> Today, this week, no matter what you're facing or how you feel about yourself, if there's one thing I want you to know, it's that when God looks at you, when God sees you, wholly overwhelmed, wholly confused, 
the good and the bad, all rolled into one. When God looks at you, God looks at you like Charlotte Fosna looked at me. And God says, everything. Everything. May that be the message we carry into the world. Because this world right now is so mixed up and so confused and there are so many things that not just children are facing, but we are facing. The doubts and insecurities, the the fears that we have. And let us always remember that this proclamation isn't just a feel-good, sentimental thing. This is a proclamation that we can make boldly because of these waters. It's in these waters that we are claimed and we are named. We are told you are loved unconditionally. You are my child. And at the 11 o'clock service, we will bring a baby to these waters and we will once again, as the community of faith, say to that child, in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, do you know what God loves about you? And the whole church will say... But you see, that's not just a one-time proclamation, is it? It's not just one time that we tell a baby, you're loved, God loves you. It's an everyday reality. It's an everyday reality. And it's that love, that all-consuming love of God that washes us clean. And God knows we need washed clean. So may you grab hold of the promise that is already freely given to you. And today and tomorrow and this week, may you tell your spouses, your children, your neighbors, even the one you don't particularly like, may you tell them that God loves them. Tell them through your words. Tell them through your actions. Tell them through the way that you show up and you stand with them in the midst of their uncertainties. This is the calling and mission of the church. Amen? Amen.